0: When we began 1 Timothy chapter 2, we began by looking at different facets of prayer, seeing what it means to have a well-rounded prayer, offering not just one type, but rather seeing that it included supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, as it says in verse one. And then we continued on and saw the content of a well-rounded prayer, that the verses placed before us specifically called upon the body of Christ not just to pray, but to pray specifically for the lives of peacefulness and quiet so that the gospel may go forth. And just last week, we came to the important realization that prayer is not just a request, but it's a response. Prayer is a response to who God is and what God has done. That truth then brings us this morning now to the structure of prayer. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Well-Rounded Prayer, The Conduct of Prayer. And as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, and I think I will read the whole chapter. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 8. I desire, then, that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. In June 1942, the United States engaged Japan in what is now known as the Battle of Midway. The US Navy's codebreakers had intercepted and decrypted Japanese communication, revealing that the Japanese had planned to attack the island of Midway. And so with this valuable information and intelligence, a man by the name of Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, the commander of the US Pacific Fleet at that time, devised a strategy and a plan, one that was considered risky. Nimitz knew that the Japanese were confident in their naval superiority over the United States. And so they expected the United States to react defensively to their assault on Midway Island. Nimitz instead decided to take the offensive and launch a surprise attack on the Japanese fleet. To do this, Admiral Nimitz ordered the three US carriers, the USS Enterprise, the USS Hornet, and the USS Yorktown, to sail towards the Japanese fleet. However, Admiral William Halsey, who was the commander of those aircraft carriers, was temporarily absent because he was ill. And so his vice admiral, Frank J. Fletcher, took over in his place assumed command. And so upon receiving the orders from the MITs, Fletcher became apprehensive because indeed it was a risky strategy. And so he was worried about leaving some of his fleet exposed and, and what happens if they downed some of their planes and only had limited resources to begin with. And so with that potential loss, Fletcher decided to disobey the orders that he was given. The United States would win that battle, and they did so actually pretty decisively. That one battle cost the United States, my understanding, is one carrier, one destroyer, 144 aircraft, and 362 men. Vice Admiral, Admiral Fletcher and his decision to not follow those orders actually left more planes exposed and more units exposed. Instead, if he had followed the original plan, it's likely the defeat would have been even more in the US's favor and probably guarded some of those resources and not had the losses that the US incurred. But he chose to go his own way. For years now, there's an ongoing trend in which it is fashionable, at least in the United States, to question authority. We are in an era in which the natural reaction of the culture is to reject any source of authority. It is reasonable in our culture today to say that because leaders are not always right, it is appropriate to defy leadership at all times. We know this to be the case by the fact that the current disposition of our culture is not reasonable discussion, but rather ruinous demonstration. is not productive parley, but punitive protest. I think the last few years, the top news stories of protest across the United States would affirm that. This movement suggests that if it comes from any authority, then every rule and every intention must be rejected until openly proven beneficial. There are several problems with this attitude. Not that I'm trying to say it's okay for some people to be domineering, or that we shouldn't hold authority accountable. But at the most basic level, this attitude is really born out of pride. It says, I know more than you do, and therefore, I'm going to act my way. But it even goes further than that. It assumes that every person has an equal amount of authority, that every person has an equal amount of knowledge, or that every person has an equal amount of wisdom. In the case of Vice Admiral, F- Admiral Fletcher... His decision to disobey was based on the assumption that he had the same information and the same amount of authority as Admiral Nimitz. He did not take into account the fact that in his position, the Admiral had a broader scope and a broader picture of really what was taking place. He didn't take into account the fact that in his position, the Admiral also had a higher authority for offering these directives. He did not even take into account that in his position, the admiral had staff and individuals around him feeding him information and offering counsel and wisdom. We can criticize a vice admiral, especially when we look back and recognize that there were severe consequences. But what he did back then, 80 years ago, is not much different than how people approach life. Sometimes we think it's better to go our own way. But the commanding officer had a fuller picture. He had more information to act upon. And so the orders he gave were based on that. That trend is not just true in our culture. That trend is true in the church. When you look at a church that has wondered from the truth of God and and wonder what happened, the answer is really quite simple they began to question the authority of God. Every compromise begins with the idea that I know better than God does. Most people wouldn't say that outright. Instead, what they'll say is something like, well, that's just not my experience. Or I I believe this though. Or they will say, yeah, but that was written, scripture, back then and times have since changed what people forget though is that the lord always knows best according to ephesians 1 the lord does things according to the counsel of his will he takes no counsel from himself and, and truthfully or from anybody outside himself but truthfully i don't know that i want him to take counsel from anybody else if he asked my opinion i'd probably mess things up only god is perfect only God knows all things, and only God knows all things about all things. When the Lord puts a plan in place, and he has done so at his own counsel, according to his knowledge, according to his wisdom, which takes in everything from eternity past all the way to eternity future. He can look at everything that has happened in the past. He can look at everything that will happen in the future. And say, this is what needs to happen now, and it will be perfect. And so when the Lord gives instructions, we don't need to question it like the culture does. We need to only assume that it is exactly what is necessary in that moment to fulfill Romans 8.28, which is to work all things to the glory of God and the good of God's people. It's critical that we are convicted by that truth Because as we enter further into the book of 1 Timothy, we're going to encounter standards and regulations given by the Lord that are difficult to live out. They are especially difficult to live out in our current culture. But if we believe that the Lord has our interest in mind, then we have to believe that there is a reasonable rationale for each of the standards that the Lord has put forth. This morning, we look at the standard the the Lord puts forth in corporate prayer. In one short verse here, the Lord establishes rules that are meant to regulate corporate prayer. Regulate praying as a body of Christ. And so what I want you to see this morning is that the Lord regulates that corporate prayer, not for the sake of being a domineering God, who simply is just making demands on his people, but that these regulations actually serve a purpose. And that purpose is to protect both the sanctity of prayer and the sanctity of God's people. And so I want you to note first the procedure of prayer, the procedure of prayer. According to 1 Corinthians 10.31, anything that is undertaken by any person is to be done for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. If all things are meant to glorify him, then God has an invested interest in how all things are accomplished. At stake is his reputation. And so we can't say, well, the Lord doesn't care about that, because he's going to care about the smallest of details, because it impacts what people think about him. We see this in every set of instructions he ever presents to his people throughout scripture. As a grand engineer to Noah, he provided a set of plans for the ark with some specific details that were premeditated for the purpose of even pointing to the future of his son, Jesus Christ. To Moses and Solomon, both in different generations and different eras, God becomes the grand architect. And he presents to them these blueprints for places of worship. To Moses, of course, it was the movable tabernacle. To Solomon, it was that permanent temple. So precise are the details, though, in each of those, that he not only provides the measurements and the plans for the the structure itself, but even provides the design and the details for each of the furnishings and for the garments that are going to be involved in the processes and the procedures that would take place according to the Lord's declarations. With his glory at stake, God is precise in the details and decrees, especially when it comes to worship of him. And so we come to 1 Timothy 2.8, and the Lord has established himself as a God of order by this point, who sets forth standards and procedures for his glory and the good of his people. And so we read the procedure prayer established in verse 8, and the entire verse reads... I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I want you to note specifically that the procedure established by the first part of that verse. I desire that in every place that men should pray. Offered in those words are two standards that are critical to the mandate of prayer. The first is the standard of worship. The standard of worship. The followers of Christ are to pray at all times. The instruction given in verse 1 through 8 are instructions not for individual prayer, though they could certainly apply for that. Remember that as we've gone through this text from verse 1 now through verse 8, what we've seen repeatedly is that these instructions are given to the outline of the conduct of corporate prayer, how we pray as a group, as a church, as a body of Christ, That's conveyed by that phrase there, in every place. I say Jewish phrase to mean in every meeting place. It's found in Malachi one ten through 11. And we find some surprising instructions there. The verses read, Malachi one ten through 11. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering of worship from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And every place, in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi here speaks of offerings and incense to be made to the Lord. But what do you notice about this text? It said the same thing. Those offerings are to be made in every place. That's contrary to the instructions given in Deuteronomy 12, which says that offerings are to be made where? In the temple. Malachi is looking ahead to a time then when people will worship elsewhere. Instead, a time will come when the people will gather and worship wherever they are. And so in every place, they will worship. And so in every place, they will worship in prayer. This is not a phrase to mean wherever you are, such as a restaurant or in a park, or to do so by raising your hands. That would be contrary to what it says in Matthew 6, 6, to not attract attention to yourself by praying. Instead, the procedure for prayer set forth is for places in corporate worship. In every place that you meet, which at the time of this writing is where? Primarily in house churches. They didn't have buildings at this point. It wasn't until the third century when churches really started owning land. Literally, the church could be meeting anywhere. But wherever they met, they were to be praying, and this was the procedure for prayer. That procedure for prayer not only sets a standard for worship, but it also sets a standard for leadership. The text says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. (coughs) Frequently when scripture uses the word men, it's often a reference to humanity or all of mankind, every person. Other languages actually do the same even today. But that word in 1 Timothy 2.8, that andros in Greek, means only men. This is not an inclusive term, meaning men and women. It is men. And so this is a call not for all people, but it's a call for the men to take leadership for corporate prayer. Prior to the New Testament church, in the synagogue, it was the men who prayed before the congregation, because the burden of leadership on the, for the church is men, it continued to be the men who led public corporate prayer in the church. It's important to understand, too, that this is not permitting or not prohibiting women from praying. While addressing the issue of head coverings, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, but every wife who prays with her head uncovered dishonors the Lord. And then a few verses later, he says something similar. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray? And I point those out not to discuss head coverings. I point those out because clearly it's saying that women are praying. And that seems to be a good thing. There's nothing here removing the privilege of prayer from women. Because they're still seen as valuable in the eyes of the Lord. Galatians 3.28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. And then it says there's no male or female for all are one in Christ. And so in the eyes of the Lord, men and women are equal. But in consultation with his own will and his perfect wisdom, for the sake of his own glory, the Lord has established a particular order in the church, and the standard has been set for the men to step up and to lead. And here they do so by leading in prayer. Men have been established as leaders in the home and in the church church not because they're more superior, not because they're more moral or because they're more knowledgeable, but simply because that's the standard and structure that the Lord has set forth. And if he has set that forth, who am I to disagree? The Lord has set the standard. His wisdom indicates that this is the best way for the church to function. And so I trust it to be perfect because God is perfect. This means that men set the standard for prayer. The body of Christ will follow the men's lead when they lead in prayer. They will set the tone for what that corporate prayer looks like in the church. By their leadership, then, their prayer can create unity within the body of Christ. Them praying can shepherd the people by taking their burdens before the Lord. By their prayers, they guide and they facilitate the body of Christ's connection with the Lord. And establish, then, the importance of prayer in the life of the church. It is because of this responsibility, then, that this next point becomes critical. So I want you to know, second, the posture of prayer. The posture of prayer. Verse says, I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, it is here that the text outlines a physical posture of prayer, telling the men, leading the prayer, that they must do so with hands held high, lifted up to the Lord. There exists a sarcophagus from the third century, and around each side is a series of carvings that are pretty intricate. The detail shows that the artist is somebody of great skill. It also shows that the person inside, who I'm not really sure who was buried in it, had significant wealth. Those carvings tell a story, and if I remember right, I believe it's the story of Jonah. But within that story, and what you see in those carvings, is one figure standing there, praying. But not in the posture that is typical today, with hands folded, head bowed. That figure is standing with their arms outstretched, and hands lifted high. Because that was a typical posture for prayer. In early Judaism. At key moments in the chronicles of the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, the posture of prayer is portrayed as standing. Luke 18, Jesus teaches a parable about prayer. And he teaches, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And then he describes these two men. First in verse 11, he says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Did you catch that? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. And then two verses later, verse 13, he describes the tax collector. and says, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In both cases, they're portrayed as standing as a normal routine means of prayer when Jesus confronts the merchants inside the temple when they're selling and he overturns their tables and condemns their actions, he actually presents the same thing in Mark 11. Prayer is as something you do standing. And then we have these uplifted hands. It's common to be standing, but just as common was to have uplifted hands. That finds its root all the way in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 8.22, it says... Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. he Spread out his hands. The psalmist pleads in Psalm 28, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. And our call to worship this morning What did it say? Verse 2 of Psalm 134. Lift up your hands to the holy place. Whether praising the Lord or whether pleading with the Lord, the posture portrayed is standing with uplifted hands. Is this the only way to pray, though? Consider what happens at 1 Kings chapter 8. I just read to you 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. And it shows Solomon standing up with outstretched arms. But if you read further, in the same story, in the same chapter, verse 54, it says, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. In verse 22, he's standing, but in verse 54, he's kneeling. In both cases, he's got his arms outstretched. Kneeling was a form of praying too, just as common as standing. Daniel chapter six, the satraps and the commissioners, they conspire to remove Daniel from leadership. And how do they do that? They come before King Darius and they persuade him to sign this injunction that says, if anyone brings a petition to anybody else except the king, that person should be placed in the lion's den. And not realizing the implications, King Darius allows himself to be manipulated and indeed signs that injunction into law. What's that mean for Daniel, who's bringing his petitions before the Lord and not for King Darius? What does Daniel do? He responds in prayer. Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He never changed what he did. And we see he kneels in prayer. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, Abraham's servant who goes off looking for a wife at at Abraham's request for for Jacob and he finds Rebekah. And what it says there is that when he found Rebekah, he praised the Lord by bowing his head. So now we've seen head lifted up, eyes up high, or down. Jesus, on the other hand, not only prayed with his hands lifted up, but it says it he lifted his eyes to heaven in John 17. In some of the more extreme cases, Moses and Numbers 16 and Manoah and Judges 13, they fall down and prostrate themselves on the ground. So from Genesis to Revelation, there are any number of prayer postures. Eyes up, eyes down. Feet up, knees down. Head bowed down towards the earth, head inclined towards heaven. With so many different postures presented, how does a person know how to pray? Why would scripture give so many different instructions? Because it's not the physical posture that's the emphasis of our text. I will say that if leadership, if the leadership really falls to men and they set the model for prayer, it's likely that the church is gonna follow whatever posture the men do. But look at what the text says. 1 timothy 2 and we should begin to see the emphasis not on the physical posture but on the spiritual posture i desire then that in every place that men should pray lifting holy hands not just lifting one's hands but lifting holy hands consider what the lord told judah through isaiah Isaiah chapter 1, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds. From before my eyes, cease to do evil. The point here is that a person's hands represents that person's deeds. And so to come with soiled hands is not just to be unclean physically, it was to be unclean spiritually spiritually. That's why James writes in James chapter 1, verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Actually, I think that's 4-8, not 1-8. The idea is not just to have clean hands, the idea is to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and made holy. That we may approach the Lord and be holy and blameless. And so it's not about praying with lifted hands, it's about praying with holy hands. Because our spiritual posture in prayer is far more important than our our physical posture. Why does the Lord even care? What difference does it make to him? It's not like our unholiness makes God unholy. It's because he cares about the life of the church on earth. Because the life of the church on earth is meant to be a picture of the life of the Christian in heaven. All that we do is the body of Christ It's supposed to point people towards heaven, and in heaven, there will be no sin. It's an offense to God's holiness, and so it must be eradicated. We obviously know that we're going to battle with the flesh until that point, but the idea is that we're continually wrestling with it and putting it to the side so that we can point to heaven. And so in heaven, we will worship the Lord in purity. Purity precedes worship. We saw this in, or see this in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Purity precedes worship. This is why it is important for us to see that prayer is an act of worship a response to the activities and attributes of God. It brings about a sacredness then to prayer. So that like when we worship the Lord at the Lord's Supper and we don't partake in a holy manner, the idea is that when we worship the Lord corporately in prayer, we don't partake in an unworthy manner. And so we could say that the posture of prayer is purity. And that leads us to this final point, the purity of prayer. After stipulating that men should lead in a holy manner, the Apostle Paul points out two specific ways in which men defile themselves or participate in prayer in an unworthy manner. Again, the verse verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger we're quarreling and so I want you to note there's the purity of prayer this is a pretty extraordinary verse because it does something that we wouldn't anticipate or normally usually think about and so I, I want you to see this and, and so let's walk through very clearly the verse establishes holiness as a standard of prayer standard of corporate prayer But when Paul calls out the Ephesian church and its leaders, he does so here for their anger and their quarreling. It appears that their prayer time has devolved into a time in which they're expressing their anger and they're just using it as more time to quarrel. Perhaps they're praying like the Pharisee that we just read in Luke 18, who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, unjust, adulterers, and even like the tax collector. Anger and quarreling are outward manifestations of a heart that's not transformed by Christ. And so they're the things that every believer is called to put off, according to Colossians 3.8. In fact, it's contrary to the spirit, it says in Galatians 5. I want to pay special attention very quickly to that second word, quarreling. Some of your versions will translate that word as doubting or reasoning. And the reason it does this is that words signify doubt of another argument. Not like I doubt in God, but I just doubt the argument of another person. And so the person's going back and forth in their mind, reasoning what is true or not. So if a translation you're using uses the word doubt, that's why, or reasoning. But the point is both are conveying that a dispute is taking place. So what we have here in the Ephesian church is the leadership in the the church in charge of setting the standard for prayer. But instead, they're using it as a way to manifest their anger and their disputes. Anger is a dangerous force. According to Paul, again in Galatians 5, anger and dissension, it's a work of the flesh, not of the spirit. There's a story about an argument that broke out between two baseball players in a stadium in Baltimore in 1894. It quickly spread. And so other members of each of the two teams gathered as well. And they began to fight. The fighting grew so intense that someone set the grandstand on fire. Fire regulations not being what they are today, it spread very quickly. In fact, it spread to 107 different buildings around the stadium and resulted in a huge loss. And all of it began simply by anger and quarreling of two individuals. Anger and disputes are destructive, with the potential to destroy not just physically, but spiritually. It's not keeping then with the conduct of prayer. And so they're warned to put it off. It doesn't even produce the righteousness of God, we hear from James in chapter 1 of James. It shows the absence of patience and kindness and forgiveness. And if you don't have those things, if you have anger in your heart, how can you then pray verses 1 and 2 of First Timothy? How could we pray all things for all people if we're simply angry with people? First Timothy 2, 1 and 2, it says, First of all then, I urge urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There is no way somebody can pray this while being filled with a spirit or attitude of anger and quarrelsomeness. Prayer is a holy and noble endeavor because it is a means to worship a holy and noble God. But prayer has been used in a lot of unholy ways. As we see here, it's been used to perpetuate dissension and express anger. I've seen it used for manipulation. Some movements use prayers as a means to garner money. I remember when Bethany and I were at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, so the site of the original temple. Although up above, you have to go through security, and that is controlled by Muslims, down below is still open to go pray. And so as we entered, men on one side, women on another, I I grabbed my yarmulke and headed over to the wall to pray. And at one moment, a man drew near to me and began asking what I was praying for. We had a great conversation. When all was said and done, he held out his hand after asking to pray for me. I'm never gonna turn down somebody saying, can I pray for you? But he wanted money. And I gave him some, but I have to admit I was pretty frustrated because it was manipulative on his part. I wish somebody would have warned me that this took place at the whaling wall before I went in because I wasn't aware. I don't know a story. Maybe he was destitute. But I would have much rather him said, hey, I need money, can you help me out, and been honest rather than have been manipulative. Instead, he used this gift of God, this means of worship, and turned it into something for monetary gain. How fitting it was at the Wailing Wall where Christ had overturned the tables of those that were doing something similar centuries prior. So sometimes prayer is used wrongly, sometimes for anger, sometimes for manipulation. Most frequently it's used for gossip. But prayer is meant to be a means of worshiping the Lord. And so it's meant to be undertaken in a holy manner. Our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 24. We read that for a reason. Psalm 24, 3 asks, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who's qualified to come to the Lord? Who's qualified to bring prayers on behalf of people? As an example, and the answer is found in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Do you see what this verse has done? Verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2 just set moral qualifications for those who lead in corporate prayer. Note the difference. I did not say that there's a qualification for people to pray. Anyone can pray at any given time. In fact, we're called to pray at any given time individually. But the one who leads prayer is to be a man of qualified spiritual character. He sets the tone for prayer in the church and so the standard he sets is to be one of godliness. That should tell us two things. One is that the Lord takes holiness very seriously. The second is that the Lord takes prayer very seriously. The standards set forth in 1 Timothy 2.8 are standards meant to protect the purpose of prayer, which is to worship the Lord. These standards then protect the church from worshiping the Lord falsely. Well, they do offer, what they do is they offer a standard for people so that they may experience the Lord in a more intimate way, that they may know Him more deeply and trust Him more profoundly. So when the church gathers for corporate prayer, by conforming to the Lord's call here, the church is fulfilling its call to glorify Him. And in holiness, it's able to shepherd and steward God's people towards him. The procedure of corporate prayer, then, is that men lead prayer in a posture of purity. Let's pray. Our Father God, at every instance, every reading of your word, Lord, we see your greatness and your goodness, Lord. Father, we see it even not just in the things you do in our lives, but we see it in every directive, Lord, because every directive points to your character. It points to your holiness and your goodness, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we would rest in that, that our obedience would come not just out of obligation, but rather out of a love for who you are and what you do. May it be a response, an act of worship. Father, may we maintain the standards that you have set forth because they serve a purpose in fulfilling your will. Father, we thank you for this gift of prayer specifically, this means by which we can communicate with you, that we can draw nearer to you, Lord. Father, I pray that we would undertake it with all seriousness, that we would use it as an opportunity to know you more deeply, Lord. And Father, may it be an act of loving worship. And so we give you praise, thanking you for it. It is in your holy and precious name we pray.